I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Michael Harris joins me again. He recently published a new book, All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. Like his previous books, it's an engaging look at life and the society we live in today and what's sustainable for the future. In this book, uh, he begins by looking at the endless consumption plaguing our society. Then the book gets back to basics, as it were, as Mr. Harris seeks the meaning we need by understanding craft, as well as the outdoors and beauty. Then the author reflects on life through the understanding of care. He wonders what his later years will be like as he discusses his husband's mother's dementia. It's often hectic and frustrating, but Michael finds a sublime. The book looks at what's uh, untenable and unsustainable in society, but it also seeks to find what lasts and what endures in life itself, especially the one we cultivate with ourselves and those closest to us. Michael Harris is the best-selling author of The End of Absence and Solitude. The former received the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction and was longlisted for a slew of book prizes. The latter uh, was also a national bestseller and was longlisted for the RBC Taylor Prize. He first appeared on the program when that book was published in 2017. He is a faculty member in the Literary Journalism Program at the BAMP Center and uh, the writer of the award-winning podcast Command Line Heroes. The website for more is at michaeljohnharris.com. This new book is published by Doubleday. We taped this interview nearly a month ago. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Michael Harris. Mr. Harris, good morning. Hi, how are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm great, I'm great. So I read your book over the holidays, and I have to admit, um, as I started the book, you know, with everything that's happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic, with the with the heat that we had this past summer, the cold in the fall and, and just before winter, and then, of course, the snow here in Vancouver, um, it hasn't been pleasant, but then, you know, as, as we go on in the book, you know, the, as we move through your book, um, it starts to touch our heart. Um, what was it like to, to write the book in terms of thinking about the wider world and, and, and say, consider how you felt and, and, and the people around you, say? Yeah, it, well, I, I think what you're pointing out there was, was a really important part of, of the writing of the book, actually. It starts out... Uh, maybe more like a standard nonfiction book talking about the the uh, the invention of consumer culture and uh, and and how this kind of story of consumer culture uh, took over uh, contemporary life and in in searching for an antidote to consumer culture uh, I I'm kind of looking at more humane uh, uh, stories or, or ways of measuring your life and the content of the book actually starts to change as you move through it. So it's kind of like a, a meta effect where by the end of the book, it's actually, uh, it, it, it's almost become more like a memoir. It, it's yeah. become much more personal and intimate. And uh, yeah, so have, having the book's content kind of reflect its message in that way was, was pretty important. And invariably, one reads themselves into um, that which you write. Um, I have to admit, yeah, I, I found it unpleasant, if you will, to start off thinking about us and, and the wider world mm. and, and our addiction to, to things that we buy and the things that we throw away, essentially. Um, yeah. You start the book by going, is that the garbage dump on Kent Avenue there? Uh, I'm actually not sure about the address now that I think about it. it it's sort of like on the periphery of the city. Yeah. So so um, <laughs> the thing I kept thinking about, and, and I've never been to the dump, I, I, I know people that go there and 
drop things off, you know, and, 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 um, um, but I've always avoided because I've always, uh, I'm always afraid of what it smells like. What did it smell like, Michael? It doesn't smell that bad. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I, it, it, it doesn't smell that bad. It is, uh, largely covered in like, uh, like flowery, almost like a meadow. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost like if you can imagine a birthday cake full of garbage with a like, fairly attractive uh, icing of, of, of uh, like a seal on top. You know, like some of the hills are, are kind of covered in plastic and others have, have got grass growing on top. They really, I mean, there, there's literally like deer uh, grazing on, on the perimeter. It, it's like fairly attractive. And like a falconer comes to shoo away all the seagulls, so you don't even have that effect. Mm. And, and it, you know, it, it became a kind of it, it, it. What was interesting about that to me, the, the prettiness of it, yeah. was it became a kind of metaphor for the way that we're all kind of uh, invested in invisibilizing uh, the, the degree to which we consume things and throw them away. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's the thing that, that I kept thinking about is is um, uh, you know, and I'm guilty of all this. I mean, we all are. Um, uh, and especially, you know, just coming out of Christmas, all the stuff that we've bought that we've since thrown out. Sure. Um, we know that life is, as we live it, is untenable, it's unsustainable, yet a lot of us just plot on as usual. Why don't, um, a lot of us see life as finite? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the book begins, uh, with a, with a scene where, uh, my husband and I are, like at a Dairy Queen in the interior of BC, watching forest fires, mm. and we're we're eating an ice cream while we watch the forest fire. And it wasn't until after I wrote that scene that I realized, oh, this, this is me fiddling while Rome burns, right? This is I'm, I'm literally <laughs> yeah. like eating an ice cream while the world burns. Uh, so to your point, we, you know, we humans are capable of a level of cognitive dissonance that constantly blows my mind, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody we i mean i I think it's a survival tactic it must be right like we we seem to be able to uh invest in our own lives even though we know one day we're going to die and a generation later no one will remember us and then the you know the infinity of the galaxy will swallow us up we (laughs) we we live by stories that we tell ourselves about meaning and purpose rather than uh facts on the ground, and I think that is at once our uh, our saving grace, because it gives life meaning and, and a sense of, uh, of safety, um, but it's also, it, it, when, it, when those stories run out of control or get out of control, uh, it's also a huge danger to us. You write in the book, and I found this, this fascinating, and you know, there was news this past week about, um, or earlier this month, about uh, Tesla sales. Um, being at an all-time high, uh, we try to buy ourselves out of, of jams, if you will. We try, try to buy electric cars or, or, or cloth bags, with various gadgets and gizmos that'll make our life better or easier. Say, um, yeah. we need to get away from that too, don't we? So, there's nothing wrong with uh, with you know with with green technology per se. It's not that that's not an important part of the solution. I think the the problem is the idea that we're going to buy our way out of a consumer problem, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, there, there's something I talked about in the book called the Jevons paradox that uh, is kind of 
always stuck with me. And it's this idea that you, when you bring resource efficiency or energy efficiency to a new uh, uh, piece of technology, um, you you would think that that means okay, we've got more efficient uh, like refrigerators. Say mm-hmm. that means we're going to save energy yeah. on our refrigeration. But that's not what happens. The paradox is that resource efficiency actually leads to greater consumption. Mm. So uh, when when refrigerators became uh, more efficient, they actually doubled in size. I mean, anybody who's old enough can remember refrigerators never used to be as big as they are now. Yeah, right? yeah. Same thing happened with LED light bulbs. Everybody thought, oh, we're going to save so much energy on, on electricity. What happened? We just started covering buildings in light bulbs, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and I mean, I, even I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not really that concerned about leaving light bulbs on when I walk around the house the way I, I did when I, when I was a kid, right? Yeah. So I don't think we're ever going to um, invent our way out of this problem. It has to also be about uh, behavior change and, and policy change. What about this idea, Michael, that, that um, why do I need to think about that when, when other people aren't? And you hear this argument yeah. about, say, um, um, carbon emissions, and w- why should Canada do this if, if, if uh, a con- other countries aren't? Yeah. Um, wh- why should I uh, turn the tap off when I'm brushing my teeth when I know three other people who do the same thing? Um, sure. Does it really matter at the end of the day? Yeah, I, right. I mean, it doesn't matter if you vote, I guess, <laughs> is how I would respond, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, the same, it's the same thing, right? Uh, I, I don't know that um, in the big picture it does matter if one person decides to take a, a first-class flight to Hawaii. Um, what matters is that enough people have a change of heart over enough period of time that voting patterns change in such a way that politicians feel accountable to uh, a, a movement that values humans over GDP, yeah. values, you know, uh, values a person's ability to buy durable goods over a company's uh, right to plan obsolescence into our lives, right? Uh, so that, that, that's what matters. And, and, you know, the, the other, when people ask, like, you know, does it really matter, the, it, it, it always strikes me as kind of hilarious when, like, when, when people look at uh, environmentalists as being sort of the irrational ones or, or the, the, the activists or yeah. the right. Uh, to my mind, we we are the rational ones. The the entire civilization in which the capitalist uh, machine is running uh, is dependent upon a stable climate. Everything that we know and love only became possible because for the for the the whole stretch of our uh, of our existence as a species, uh, carbon dioxide levels have hovered around 300 parts per million. And now, for the first time in a million years, that number is up to over 400 parts per million. So uh, the, the, the consumer culture that, that has brought us so many positive things, and I, and I admit that, that uh, growth has been a, a, a gain in, in yeah. a lot of ways, it is dependent upon a stable climate. Uh, and, and so if we like a certain amount of consumption, we have to rein in uh, our consumption is, uh-huh. is, the, is the big paradox there. And that's the thing. I mean, you mentioned GDP a moment ago. I mean, 
if, if, if you put a gun to my head before I read your book, I probably wouldn't be able to explain what that meant. Um, <laughs> but a lot of people tend to think that, that um, that's the, the, say, the arbiter of, of, uh, or the, the gauge, I should say, of how good the economy is or how wealthy we are. Yeah. A lot of people don't know what that is. And, and um, a lot of people just think that if we grow or continue to grow in, in various sectors, mm-hmm. um, it'll be fine. We need to get away from that, and and so I'm I'm wondering, um, do you find um, you yourself are, are someone as a writer who uses their writing to convince others um, of what they ought to do better, or say, or understand better? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm terrified of talking about GDP, uh, and I and I <laughs> and I knew I would get myself into this this corner when I was writing it because I'm, I'm I'm a journalist, which to my mind means a generalist. Not, you know, I'm not an economist, uh, but I mean, what I can tell anyone who's listening is, is, you know, GDP stands for gross domestic product. It's basically the sum total of all goods and services that the nation produces in the course of a, of a, of a set period of time. Uh-huh. So, uh, so every time uh, you, you buy something, you're contributing to the, to the GDP because something else has just been built or produced yeah. in order to, to fill up the blank that you just created. Um, the trick is, uh, you can you can increase the GDP of a of a nation uh, by going to war, right? War is yeah. great for GDP. Right. So by simply looking at GDP numbers, that that is uh, that is a kind of economist or a politician's blinders that you're that you're putting on yourself. You're not looking at the totality of human experience, and uh, you know you know you. There, there are other indexes by which we can measure our success. Is the point, and even even the guy who uh, first came up with the idea of a, a national set of accounting, uh, which became our, our modern day GDP standards, uh, e- even he told the U.S. Senate, obviously you would not want <laughs> this to be your sole measure of how the country was doing. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting that you know the, the guy that this is all predicated on, uh, he recognized that it, it was only a partial reading of, 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 uh, of success. Uh, I'm looking at my notes, and in, in, in chronologically in the book, after, after um, you talk about dopamine, you talk about Edward Bernays, uh, which is a section of the book that I found particularly fascinating. I went to the end notes and, and was seeking some of the, the pieces that you, you um, used as you were writing that, but I'm going to have to skip it because I'm fascinated by the idea of craft. And um, this person that you encountered, Don Gardner, um, I guess you first um, found out about him on YouTube, is that right? Yeah, it was completely accidental. Um, I, uh, I, I don't I was just, you know, going down a YouTube rabbit hole uh-huh. the way people do. Sure. And then I stumbled on this video of a guy crafting a birch bark canoe. And that video had like 50 views or something. This was not, not something that the algorithm at YouTube would normally have sent to me. So it, it, it was like it kind of dropped from heaven. Uh-huh. And uh, I ended up going and uh, finding him in sort of the foothills around Banff. Um, he has a workshop there, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and anyway, I spent some time with him while he was crafting another birch bark canoe and uh, some bows and arrows. Uh, and he became kind of my the hero of the part of the book 
that is looking at the value of craft as a kind of alternative or an antidote to to trying to measure your life by buying things. Yeah, it's beautiful what you wrote in that section of the book, um, um, and not just because of your own your own craft of writing, say, but um, getting his view on life and the outdoors and the world around him. Um, I, I just found that so delightful to read. Um, how, how did your own view on life, say, change after meeting him and spending time with him? You know, I, it's it's funny. I he he had one of those personas that I don't know if you've ever encountered this kind of person, but by being around them, you can feel your blood pressure go down. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, you, he was just so. <laughs> relaxing and then at the same time it was a kind of admonishment to to be with him because all the things that I fuss about and 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 fill up my head worrying about uh, were just kind of paled by comparison to his sort of childlike love of his ability to manipulate wood and and uh, you know, like big sheep horns, or 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 like uh, you know, just water and dirt. Like <laughs> the guy was like at home in the elements of the earth, and uh, and so so it it's not that I've become a master craftsman in the in the meantime, but I think being with him gave me permission to start noticing those things again in a, in a way that I hadn't done for a long time. Does your idea of writing change, say, when, when, when you look at words itself as you write? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that happened with this book is I decided, uh, because of the content of the book, because it was sort of, uh, sort of a slower meditation, I wanted to uh, write the book by hand, which is something that I, I definitely did not do with the first two books. Um, so my, the, the craft of my writing... Uh, I think was transformed a little bit by the process. Yeah, I, I got a bunch of you know yellow legal pads and boxes of HB pencils, and uh, it it was a lot of a lot more labor. But that's that's part of what I was learning from Don Gardner as well, right? That sometimes by putting obstacles in your way, by building labor into what you're doing, uh, you you deepen your experience of, of things. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I, I uh, read the book and, and took notes on yellow legal pad as I was uh, um, reading. Um, and I found that um, it's an extra step, obviously, because I could easily do that on a computer. And sure. then and then it, it'd be easier to print out uh, in preparing for a chat. But when I have to go back and read my uh, notes, um, I remember the stuff more. And um, I, so you use HB pencils, I noticed you just said. Um, yeah. I, I started using a fountain pen about almost 15 years ago. And, oh, cool. Um, I don't know, if, but I've talked to writers over the years. Just it, it, um, It's the affectation, too, of, of having a fountain pen. And, you know, um, you're able to refill it so you don't have to throw it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's I'm, also... I'm still trying to find the right pen for me. I, I keep on being gifted these beautiful pens... Yeah. That that don't write the way I want them to, and and end up using like blue bic pens, you know. Yeah. So I'm still looking for the right one. Yeah, that's the thing. People give you these things, and and I mean, I have I have a drawer full of things that 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 people have give, given me that that just don't work. 
and so you, you you keep working till you find you find the one you like and, and you use that. Um, it, one of the more affecting parts of the book, Michael, is when you talk about your husband's mother, and and uh, dementia that um, you all are going through essentially. Um, okay. How how has that um, experience say? How has that affected the way you've um, written? about yourself because i mean you mentioned a moment ago and i was going to ask you about memoir but you brought it up already earlier um do you um i don't know how to put this because i've read your previous books and and there's obviously yourself in them mm-hmm. but when when it's when it's um this part of one's life that, that essentially we all go through um caring for others um does that give you a perspective that, that that changes your writing? I asked you about that about when you, when you met um, Gardner, but but um, when it when it hits closer to home, does 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 that affect the writing as well? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was in a way a common. I, I didn't know it was going to go there. That it, when I started working on the book, I had no idea that I would end up writing about uh, uh, my my husband's uh, taking care of his mother, um, but. And it ended up just, it, it almost like started writing itself at some point. Like, to, the best way I can explain it is, you know, consumer culture gives us this one idea of what what's going to fulfill us, right? We're going to buy things and that's going to make us happy. And the, the exploration of the book, the thing I'm trying to investigate is what are the other kinds of goals? If, if we know that consumer culture is untenable, then what else is it about life that, that matters? And the, I guess the thing that I ended up having to walk away from was the idea that the point of life is to be happy. That's what consumer culture is always selling to us, right? Buy this and you'll be happy. And what, what came about in my life as I was actually working on the first part of the book was that I was watching this extraordinary, humane thing that my husband was doing in taking care of his mother. He was not happy to be doing that, and yet I had never seen something so human as what was going on there. And so uh, that's where I got to by the end of the book, right, that that there's a chapter on care, on taking care of people, and it ends up being about how, you know, you are, you are connected to people, you're not connected to things. And, and that was the the ultimate antidote uh, to to the consumer culture was realizing that we we like we like to think that we're being measured or that we can measure our lives by how many things we've accumulated, but in in the in the end we are the the true accounting is is, is in the people that we've touched and the people that we've protected and cared for. I was going to say it's a, an arc to the book, a beautiful arc to the book, but it's not an arc really. It, it, it's a progression um, into uh, really what uh, the way we live and, and the way we should live, I guess. Um, yeah, there's a sort of rupture point, right, yeah. Half, halfway through the book. Like it's sort of progressing along, and then there's, I think there's basically a, a point halfway through where you can kind of tell that I'm growing impatient for some kind of like a hinge point. And then the second half of the book is actually uh, quite distinct from the first half. 
Yeah, and it, it, it's a beautiful uh, book as a result. Um, you, uh, we're about the same age, um, Michael, and, and you wonder um, about what care will look like as you get older, and, and you, yeah. you, you also wonder who will care for you. Um, I turn 40 in, in a couple of uh, months, and, and I don't know, I guess this is middle age, if you will. Um, these sorts of things have, have been rattling around in my head in the last little while about what the second half or second third of life will be like, or the, the, the last third of life will be like. Um, what, what um, do, do you come to any conclusions as to how it'll turn out, say? I mean, if, for people of our generation, <laughs> I, I, mean, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Um, you know, the the most optimistic I can be is in thinking, you know, the baby boomers have reshaped every stage of life as they've moved through it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what I imagine is going to happen is that as we get the gray boom now for the next 20 years, they're going to... They're they're not going to allow for a, a shoddy uh, experience of of, uh, of geriatric care. Uh, so hopefully, uh, it, the, that whole infrastructure will be improved um, by the time we get there. I, I, I don't have you know uh, an expectation that it's going to be a lovely thing. I don't think uh, <laughs> old age ever is great. Uh, but uh, hopefully, there's going to be a bunch of empty beds somewhere, so so there's at least a place for us. Yeah, that's the thing that I was thinking about as I was reading the book. The uh, because of everything that's happened the last year, especially here in Vancouver, and the last couple of years, obviously throughout the wider world with the pandemic, um, it doesn't give me much hope personally. I know I know things are getting better in all other parts of the of life and 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 society and culture and the sort, but. Um, I can't muster much confidence or, or optimism, say. Well, nor can I. Um, the the book, uh, I, I I think some, I think most of the early readers are are getting this point I'm about to make, but some people maybe are not. Um, and it's the uh, I I'm, I'm not arguing that we're going to change our value system and that will prevent disaster. Yeah. That's that's not the point of the book at all. Rather, I, I'm actually more inclined to think that that consumer culture is so uh, all enveloping that uh, we're unlikely to escape much disaster, and therefore, on the other side of that disaster, we will be forced to uh, change our value system. Uh, so. That that's actually uh, more where where this book is coming from is is almost thinking is almost like a, a spiritual survival pack for for uh, the next one hundred years, right? It, it, it's it's not a prescription for for saving the world. Yeah, it's a marvelous way to to to, to um, frame where we are and where we're headed, though I, I must say, and in, 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 in that sense, as I finished the book, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. By the way, when you write your own notes, as, as you're or writing your own, um, writing the book out longhand, if you will, um, mm-hmm. are you the same person who types it all out? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm typing it as well. Um, and, you know, typing is, you know, because it changes the speed of thought when you're typing, uh, it becomes another opportunity for editing, too, mm-hmm. right? So, 
it's not that that typing is a bad thing. It's just that I wanted to layer in that uh, that extra labor uh, at the, at the top of the experience. Will you write a book, uh, another book, the same way? Good question. I don't know. It because yeah, you may have you may have noticed this book is shorter than than my other books. <laughs> uh, and that, that that might be because I was writing it out by hand. Um, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. The the next book I think is actually going to be a, a, a novel. Um, so it it may call for totally different different styles and, and techniques. You know the the other thing I noticed, and I I'm, I'm uh... Uh, uh, diverging wildly here as, as we wrap up. Um, I notice that people, uh, I, I write um, sort of a mix of, of, say, cursive and printing. Um, mm-hmm. It depends how fast I want to write. Um, but I notice younger people that I work with, say, um, don't know how to, to um, uh, uh, write anymore. Mm-hmm. That it's all, mm-hmm. all um, it's just printing, say. I don't. Well, I don't think they teach cursive handwriting anymore, do they? I, no. That's sort of been been abandoned. Um, and you know, like it, in uh, you know, like ten years ago, I was I was writing a lot about um, digital technology um, and looking at how I was kind of I had my McLuhan glasses on, and I was you know looking at how different media transform the way that we that we tell stories and, and change the way we think. In fact, right. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I imagine that, uh, yeah, the kinds of stories and the kind, the way we approach these big problems is actually fundamentally changed by the uh, the media through which uh, we think about them. And that's what, that's I think why it's so important to talk about this stuff in as many different ways as possible, and not just like by tweeting our outrage at it, but you know, sometimes writing in a diary or mm-hmm. talking over a dinner table or just tackling it from every different angle. Michael, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book and, and um, our chat today. Congratulations on it and, and continued good luck with it. Yeah, thank you so much. The website for more is at michaeljohnharris.com. The book is called All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. It's published by Doubleday. Michael Harris, its author, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato. <laughs>